People don't often write letters today, but a letter can be a very powerful thing. In the early days of our country's founding, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to a group of Christians. Actually, he wrote it to uh, an association of Baptists. And in that letter, he spoke of a wall of separation between the church and the state. Now, the Constitution has a fair amount to say about the relationship between the church and the state, between the government and religion, but you can search the Constitution from top to bottom. You will not find the phrase wall of separation or separation of church and state in the Constitution. You hear people quote it all the time and talk about it all the time, and we, we speak about it as though it were in the Constitution, but it, it's not in the Constitution itself. It's in one little letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to a group of believers. Now, my point is not to talk about whether or not he was right or wrong, whether it accurately reflects what's in the Constitution or whatever. My point is just to say that that one phrase and that one letter has shaped the way people think and talk for 200 years or more, right? Now, the impact of that one letter has been tremendous, but it pales in comparison to the impact of the letter that we have before us this morning. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Paul's letter to the Romans. The book of Romans in the New Testament, it comes right after the book of Acts. Romans chapter 1, we are beginning a new series of sermons this morning through, through the book of Romans, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. For nearly 2,000 years, right, this letter has been um, impacting people literally all around the world, especially in Africa and Europe and North America, uh, but all over the place. People have been reading this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, and it has been used not only to change people's minds, but also to change their lives. One commentary I was looking at this week gave a couple of quotes from two of the great reformers from the Protestant Reformation. Now, the Arguably the greatest period of impact of the book of Romans is the, the Reformation, right? And Martin Luther and John Calvin studied this letter and, and preached from this letter. And here's what Luther said about the book of Romans. He said, this epistle, which is another word for letter, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. So Luther says, you would do well to memorize every word of the book of Romans and meditate on a portion of it every day. It's that good. It's that rich. Here's what Calvin said. Calvin said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. So if you get your mind around the book of Romans, Calvin says, then you've got a doorway open to you to understanding all the most significant truths in the whole rest of the Bible. 
So I'm eager to step into this letter with you and to explore what God has revealed to us through his servant Paul in this letter to the Romans. Let me read for us the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1. It's Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when somebody wrote a letter in the first century, they did it a little bit differently than how we do it now. In the first century, when somebody wrote a letter, they started with their name instead of the person that they were sending it to. Today, when we send a letter, we usually start with the name of the person we're addressing, right? Dear Sally. And then we start the letter, and then our name comes at the end. But in the first century, they would start with their own name, the person who was sending it, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because you don't have to wait till the bottom to find out who's talking to you. So every letter of Paul's begins with his name. Paul, right? Paul, though he begins with himself, with his name at the, at the beginning of all these letters, even when Paul talks about himself, he's not ultimately talking about him. He's always ultimately talking about Jesus. Every one of his letters is about Jesus, and even his introduction about himself is ultimately about Jesus. Look what he says. The first thing he says about himself is that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, we don't normally think of being a servant as something to be proud of, right? That would be something we might want to hide, or certainly not the first thing we want to bring up about ourselves. But the first thing Paul says about himself does not have to do mainly with his authority, that he's an apostle. He'll mention that in a moment. But first he mentions his position as a servant of Christ. I have a Lord I have a master who I am accountable to, who I obey, who I am uh, subject to, who I have placed myself under, and his name is Jesus, and I am his servant, Paul says. The first thing he says about himself, "I'm I'm a slave, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he says that he was called to be an apostle. Now, we hear that word a lot, right, because there were 12 apostles, and And they were significant, but we don't often think about what it means to be an apostle. Who gets to be an apostle? When Paul says that he was called to be an apostle, he was was called to be an apostle by God. And an apostle is an authoritative messenger of Jesus. An apostle literally means one who was sent. One who has been sent out. One who has been commissioned, in other words, to represent somebody else. And so the apostles are men who were set apart by Jesus to represent Jesus and speak for Jesus. And not only that, but they were to be 
eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So that they weren't telling people things second or third or fourth hand. They were able to say, this is what I have seen about Jesus. This is what I know about Jesus. This is what I saw and I'm here to tell you about it. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.1, he said, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That's one of the criteria for an apostle. They have to have seen Jesus, been a witness of His resurrection. So later in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is uh, recounting the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, he says, Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. There was some question probably about the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship because he was not one of the men who walked around with Jesus during his earthly ministry. He wasn't a part of Jesus' band of twelve who heard him teach and witnessed him do miracles and all those things. But Paul was a legitimate apostle, though he says, I was untimely born, right? I became an apostle later than everybody else. Because his apostleship began when Jesus, who had been resurrected and already ascended into heaven, appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. That's when he became a witness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That's when he was called to be an apostle set apart to represent Jesus and speak for Jesus. So he does have authority, though he doesn't start there. He starts with the fact that he's a servant. But as a Not only a servant of Christ, he's also an apostle of Christ, a messenger of Christ, an eyewitness of the living, resurrected Christ. And then the third thing he tells us about himself is that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. There are lots of things that people can do, lots of things that God can call people to, but what Paul was set apart for, what, what God said, Paul, this is the thing I want you to do. This is what I want your life to revolve around. This is what I want you to devote yourself to was the gospel of God. And that word gospel just means good news. The good news that God has promised, that God has brought about, that God has announced. Paul, I'm setting you apart to devote your life to making that good news known. Now, in some sense... All of that is unique to Paul. Right? That's who he is. That's his identity. He's a servant of Christ. He's an apostle. He's been set apart for the gospel. But there's another sense in which our identity is very similar to Paul's. If you're a Christian, are you a servant of Christ? Of course you are. To, to be a Christian, you have to confess that Jesus is Lord, right? That's the heart of our confession. You believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, right, that Jesus is Lord. If you say, Jesus is Lord, what you are also saying is, I'm His servant. He's the boss, and I'm going to do what He says. He's the Lord, He's the Master, He's God, He's Savior, and I am under Him. I am accountable to Him. I am subject to Him. So when... when uh, when Paul was talking about what people should do when they're converted, what should you do if you're in this situation? What should you do if you're in that situation? One of the situations he addressed was, well, what if you're a slave? Right? And here's what he said. He who was called 
saved in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. So if you were a slave when you became a Christian, you're a freed man of the Lord. You're a, you're a free man in Christ. Likewise, he says, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So if you were not a slave, if you were a free man, and you've now confessed Jesus as Lord, you need to think of yourself as a slave. If you were a slave, think of yourself as free. If you were free, think of yourself as a slave. Jesus is your master, your Lord, your God, the one who you, you are accountable to, the one you live for. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.16, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's who you are. You're free in Christ, but He's given you that freedom not to do whatever you want. He's given you that freedom to serve Him, to live for Him, to honor Him with your life. So that's true of all of us, right? If we're Christians, we're all, all believers are servants of Christ. And there is a sense in which all of us devote our lives to the gospel of God. And not to the same extent that Paul did, right? Not all of us are called to a a full-time vocational ministry where we're doing evangelism or preaching or teaching or whatever like Paul was. But all of us are called to be a part of making disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing people, teaching people. We're all, we all give or go or pray or share or encourage or support the gospel being spread everywhere. So, Paul is a servant, he's an apostle, he's set apart for the gospel. What is this gospel that he's devoting his life to, that he's been set apart for? Well, Paul begins to unfold it a little bit in verses 2 and 3 and 4, and really he will spend the whole first half of the book, or the letter, describing for us what this gospel is. But here's what he says about it here, verse 2. The gospel of God which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, the Gospel that Paul is preaching and proclaiming is not something that's new. It didn't start with Paul. He didn't make it up. It didn't even start with Jesus. This is something that God had been preparing His people for all through the Old Testament. God, who spoke through the prophets, so they weren't coming up with their own ideas either, right? They were speaking God's words, what God wanted them to say, right? They, uh, as the prophets were, were speaking, God was speaking through them, and God was promising through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, in the Old Testament, this gospel. Well, where do we see that? Where in the Old Testament do we see promises of the gospel which has now come to fulfillment in the birth and life and death and resurrection of of Jesus. We see it all over the place. We see it in the garden when God promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We see it in the promises of Abraham when God promised Abraham that through him he would bless all the nations of the earth. We see it in Deuteronomy when God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses whom his people must listen to. We see it in Isaiah when God speaks of a child who would be born, who would conquer Israel's enemies and reign on David's throne and bring about 
peace and justice and righteousness. We see it in Isaiah 53 when God uh, speaks of the servant who would suffer and bear the sins of his people so that they might be forgiven and made righteous. We see it in Jeremiah 31 where God promises a new covenant with his people where God will forgive them of their sins and they'll be uh, in relationship with God. They'll know God. We see it in Ezekiel 36 when God promises to remove the heart of stone from his people and give them a heart of flesh to put his spirit in them, to dwell in them, right? to cleanse them from their sin and from their idolatry and to make them new. And that's just the beginning. I mean, we, we, could, we could keep going. All over the Old Testament, God was preparing his people for this, promising to his people the coming of this gospel, the coming of this good news. And if you say, well, where, where can I start to get a handle on how the Old Testament promised this gospel. There are lots of places you could go. Here's one. Go to the book of Acts and read the sermons in the book of Acts looking for all the mentions they make of the Old Testament. Read Peter's sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Read uh, Philip talking to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Read Paul's sermon in the synagogue in Acts chapter 13. Read the decision of the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Pick any book of the New Testament, really, especially the longer ones, and just look for the Old Testament quotations. Look for the Old Testament references and see how the apostles help you understand that what has happened in Jesus is what God was promising all throughout the Old Testament. So it was promised in the Old Testament. It's not new. And he says uh, in verse 3 that this gospel was concerning God's Son. The gospel, though it includes forgiveness, though it includes justification, though it includes salvation, the gospel is at its heart about Jesus. It is about the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, whom God sent into the world so we could be saved, so we could be forgiven, so we could be justified. But fundamentally, the gospel is about God's Son. It's about Jesus. And what about Jesus? Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now that's an interesting phrase. Why not just say, descended from David? Well, he doesn't just say descended from David because his son was not merely descended from David like a lot of other people were. He was born in David's line, just as God had promised the Messiah, the Savior, would be. But he was only descended from David according to the flesh, because before that, he had always existed. Right? He was God's eternal son, but he came and took on flesh and was born as a man from the line of David at a particular point in time. In other words, Paul is reminding us that Jesus is not merely a man. He is God in the flesh. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man, the one who came to fulfill all of God's promises. And as we read earlier from uh, 2 Samuel 7 about that promise to David that God would set one of David's descendants on his throne and establish his kingdom forever. How is God going to do that? Through sending his own son, who is God, and after he laid down his life, was raised from the dead, never to die again, to reign eternally on David's throne, establishing an eternal kingdom. 
So he's the son of God. He's descended from David according to the flesh. And then verse 4 was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Now, this is a difficult phrase. And and I'm not going to get into all the sort of pieces of how scholars try to figure out all the the little details of what Paul is saying here. But here's here's the heart of it. Here's the heart of it. Paul is not saying... That after his resurrection, Jesus became the Son of God. But he is saying something like, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that's when it became evident, when it was made public, that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Right? We even saw, um, so some, some argue that this is, this is like Jesus' coronation. This is his appointment as king. And the Son of God language here uh, it comes from the Old Testament. Right? We read, remember when we read it in 2 Samuel 7? You might have noticed this. Uh, God said to David that uh, David's son would be his son. God said, I, I, I'm going to treat him like a son and I will be a father to him. So here some scholars say this could be, this could be talking about his kingship, right? He's declared the Son of God in power as he's raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand. And, and there's sort of a coronation, they might say, uh, going on here where Jesus is shown publicly to be the Messiah and Son of God. His resurrection, however you want to put it, and however you want to take it, his resurrection is the dramatic, climactic moment that leaves no doubt about Jesus' identity as God's Son. All right, that, I think, is what Paul is saying here. And his resurrection, of course, assumes his death on the cross, which is central and essential to this gospel that Paul preaches. And he'll talk about it all throughout the book, that Jesus laid down his life on our behalf uh, on the cross, taking our sin upon his shoulders. <laughs> So this is the gospel that Paul is preaching, that, God, that Paul is going to uh, unfurl and explain more and more fully as the letter progresses. But if you're not a Christian, right, this is, this is the main, this is, we don't want you to miss this. This is the main thing. Right? The main thing that Paul wants to say, the main thing we want you to hear is about Jesus, about what God has done in sending Jesus, about the fact that even though we are sinners and rebels against God, He has loved us and sent His Son into the world to take our sin, to die our death, to rise from the dead, so that anybody who will confess their sin to God and will trust in Jesus alone to save them receives full pardon, new life, and become a new creation in Christ. You get a fresh start. You become a child of God. All by grace. All as a gift. That's what all this is about. So Paul uh, is a servant of Christ. He's devoted to the gospel of Christ. And then he talks about the mission he has received from Christ. Beginning in verse 5. Through whom? Through Jesus. He says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. In other words, I was made an apostle for this purpose, to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, what is that? That that almost sounds like an oxymoron to us, right? Because we're so used to drawing a hard line 
between obedience and faith because we want to make really clear right, that we are not saved by our obedience. We are not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith. Right? We're, we're saved when we believe, not because of anything we do. So, so we often sort of draw this rightly, draw this hard line between obedience and faith. And yet, at the same time, it is abundantly clear in Scripture that those who believe will obey. And you can read Hebrews chapter 11 and see this again and again and again. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, Abraham did that. They didn't, by faith, just sit there and do nothing. By faith, they acted. Because they believed, they did what God said. In Ephesians 2, that famous passage where it talks about how we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. And it's, it's not anything of our own doing. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. The very next thing that Paul says there is, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you were saved by grace and through faith so that you could do good works, so that you could obey God, so that you could live a life that pleases Him. So, it's possible that when Paul uses this phrase, obedience of faith here, all he means is the obedience that flows from faith. That if you believe, you're going to obey. And my aim as an apostle is not just to get people to say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll agree to that stuff you said about Jesus, but to truly believe Him and trust Him in such a way that they begin to follow Him and do what He says. Or, he could mean something slightly different. The Bible also talks about um, responding to the gospel, and the response we're supposed to have is repentance and faith, responding to the gospel being an issue of obedience. Right? So later in this letter, in Romans 10, 16, Paul says, but have they not all, uh, excuse me, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So some people haven't obeyed the gospel because they haven't believed. And the required response to the gospel is to believe the gospel, right? And there are other passages I could, um, that you could look up that's, that indicate the same thing, that we are to obey the gospel, that it's a required response. Not, a, not an obedience that merits salvation, but a, a, a response that God expects of us, that God requires of us. It could be either of those. Either way, it's not saying Paul's trying to get people to obey in order to be saved. Right? Both, whatever interpretation you want to take, both of those are saying right, that what God expects of us is to believe. Right? And that believing either is part of our obedience or leads toward obedience. Here's, here's how one scholar puts it. I thought this was, this was really helpful. He says, we understand the words obedience and faith to be mutually interpreting. They help us understand each other. Here's what he says. Obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. So it is important that we make a distinction between obedience and faith in terms of what's the ground of our salvation. It's not our obedience. It's Jesus' obedience and us trusting in Him. But if we trust in Him, we're going to obey. And we're, we need to trust in Him. We're required to trust in Him. So He's going to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. This is not just for the Jews. It's not for select Gentiles. It's for all the people. 
Jesus has died to ransom people from every tribe and tongue and nation and uh, every kind of people, right, all over the world. And Paul has been given the task of bringing this gospel to as many people as possible, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, and he's to do it for the sake of his name, for the name of Jesus. It's not for Paul's glory. It's not for Jerusalem's glory. It's not for Peter's glory. He's doing this for the sake of the name of Jesus. Here's why. Because Jesus... As God, who became man to save sinners, deserves the worship and obedience of as many people as possible. He deserves the worship and trust and obedience of every person on the planet. And so Paul's job is to to tell as many people as possible about him, to bring as many people as possible to faith in him, because Jesus deserves their worship. And then finally, he mentions who he's writing to in verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And you just need to know that that's not unique to the church at Rome. That's true of every church. That's true of every believer. We are beloved of God and called to be saints, called to be holy. God has his eye upon us. He loves us. He cares for us. He has set us apart for himself in his Son. And that's a privileged position for us to have. To be the beloved of God, the holy children of God. And with that, we have only begun to taste the riches that God has in store for us in the book of Romans. Paul's identity as a servant of Christ is our identity as Christians. Paul's gospel, the gospel of Christ, is the gospel that we have believed, the gospel that we seek to advance, the gospel that shapes and transforms our lives day by day. Paul's mission to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations is the same mission that we have. That's why we give to Lottie Moon. That's why we pray for missionaries. That's why we send out people to to do evangelism. We want Jesus to be worshipped by people from every tribe and tongue and nation just as Paul did. And we do so not because we're trying to earn God's love, but because we know in His grace He has already set His love upon us. We are His and we live to please Him because of the grace and love that He has already shown to us. Let's pray.